Today we continue on with the sutta that we began last week, Mahasatipatthana Sutta. This will be week number two. Uh, the sutta again is uh, Diganikaya, number 22. Diga means long, uh, long discourses of Lord Buddha's. And uh, last week we covered the aspects of Kayanupassana, which is a body, observation of the body or contemplation of the body, aspects of it, different branchings of that practice. So we began with the anapanasati, in and out breathing. We also covered the satisampajanya, using the body with mindfulness and clear comprehension. The four postures, we spoke about the recognizing the repulsive. Lord Buddha's image was uh, quite poignant. Some of you made comments about that later to me, about the bag with two openings, one opening on each end. And that represents the body and all its contents like the different grains and rice and sesame seeds, etc. For us to have the ability to or the time and uh, intention to look at the contents of the body realistically. That was the asubha or the repulsive. When And then we came to the four primary elements, earth, water, fire, and air. Recognizing those characteristics within the body and its motion, such as in the case of the air element, digestion, in the case of fire, earth, the solidity, the fluidity, the liquid in nature, meaning the water element. And today we will continue on with the last portion of the Kayanupasana series within the Mahasatipatthana, as you notice, it's, it's quite a long section just dedicated to the body. This, uh, in many ways, completes the whole picture. Because it takes whatever we have gone over pertaining to the body and superimposes it on the ultimate reality as it relates to the body in this life, meaning what happens to the body and specifically we're talking about the meditation on the nine charnel grounds and navasivatika it's called in pali nava means nine and uh, the ability to look at the body in its various stages and there's nine stages that lord buddha delineates different phases or stages of the body eroding. In today's world, this is very uh, off-putting for many, especially living in major cities, especially uh, developed countries. And we, we miss out. We don't have those opportunities. 
to look and to go to a charnel ground and to check it out. And as, as the case has been, and um, at the time of Lord Buddha, and still is uh, to some, uh, in some areas of the world. Uh, while I was in Nepal, I um, got a chance to go to a, a charnel ground where it was a Hindu, major Hindu temple. And they took me to the back where they conduct these ceremonies. And you could see the very uh, cremations that were going on. So they had different, almost like stalls. Um, it almost, it had, it gave me the feeling of uh, being um, at a Christian altar almost. Um, like stones and, and these rock protrusions coming out of the ground and there's the slab of uh, rock and upon which they had placed the pieces of wood. And so you would see the human body going through different phases, depending on where you were looking, which stall you were looking at. And that was quite an interesting uh, um, in many ways startling, but at the same time, I was prepared, trying to be prepared rather. But then you have your senses being attacked by so many different sensations, smells, sights, sounds, sounds of the body going through different phases as it, it, it's, it's meeting with fire, things that we don't think about. So we don't have these, um, again, opportunities because they are the best Netflix, if you will, best YouTube channel for us to be shocked into reality, startled into reality, and to pull us out of this pseudo world that we're living in. So we do have access to these, whether it's through pictures and videos that you might still find online, where every once in a while, I, I recommend you meditate a little while, maybe an hour, maybe less, depending on how much time you have, and then look at one of these pictures observing or the videos while you're observing any sense of disgust repulsion hatred shock sadness sympathy whatever may come up observing the mind as it's going through these phases fear is another one obviously like that's that cannot happen to me that feeling and and that that fear so I ask that you look at these or hear these suttas from a point of, remember, it's being used as a mindfulness tool. But this mindfulness or this meditation does not take one to absorption, definitely. It really brings out insight, the possibility for insights to take place. So there's tremendous opportunities we have to gain wisdom, thanks to the exposure we're giving to ourselves.
with these images that Lord Buddha is going to uh, provide for us. So, meditation on the nine charnel grounds. Further bhikkhus, much like when the bhikkhu sees a corpse tossed aside in a charnel ground, seeing it as one day old or two or three days old, or bloated, or turned black and blue, or festering with worms. He looks upon his own body and compares it to those in the charnel grounds while pondering to himself. This body also will suffer the same end because it is of the same nature. Hence, it would only end up like that and therefore never be the exception. Sometimes some meditators uh, look at this kind of meditation as somewhat unnecessary or too much. That's another one. Um, too much for their system to handle. Too startling. In fact, I've come across teachers of meditation, bhikkhus, who were somewhat apologetic, even mentioning this to lay people, saying, well, this is only for, meant for uh, monastics. And that doesn't necessarily have to be true uh, because you might be a lay person who just wants to uh, look at you know, one's own attachment to the body. If there's way too much attraction, sexual attraction, or you're towards your own body, looking at it as something that is incredibly wonderful and that requires preserving, keeping it intact, etc. Either using the repulsive uh, meditation, looking at the body's ingredients, or all the 32 parts of the body, or something like this, can really uh, be what the doctor ordered, as it were. And definitely, this technique uh, happens to be one of the best ways to pull us out of our Pavlovian conditioning, and um, especially nowadays. So, Sutta continues. Thus, the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. Because when you're looking at something so abhorring, something so shocking, that does something to you, to your body, even though it's not your body. You might feel nauseous. You might feel like you're going to throw up because it's too much. You might lose your uh, sense of taste or have this very unpleasant aftertaste in your mouth. Even though you didn't taste anything, you didn't touch anything, you, didn't, you just observed. That is internally. And the external one, obviously, it's happening in front of you, meaning your eyes are capturing it, your ears are hearing the sounds of, of the human body, basically being on a grill almost. But it's all surrounded by these logs of wood that are just burning and, and, you, and you're shocked to see everybody's watching, 
But the old tendency conditioning that we have, oh, let's go in and jump and save this human being, that comes up, perhaps. But then you hold yourself back and say, no, 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 this is a dead person. So now we have to convince the brain, our conditioning to say, no, 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 there, there is this thing called death and I'm supposed to be okay with it because it is inevitable. Look at everyone's faces here, standing and watching. So now there's a new set of reality that we have to negotiate into our framework of our own narrative, our own paradigm. So this is when it becomes internal and external. So this is, a, um, for lack of a better word, an assault on all the senses. Assault in the sense that it is removing the veils, allowing life to show itself in its free, in its clear, in its most undiluted way. Further, he is fully attentive to the beginning point of how the body is experienced, mindful of the point of origin of its transitions and states and how they arise while they are being felt through and with the body. So this is in reference to his own body, the person, the observer, the, the bhikkhu who is observing this. Because remember, this was part of the, obviously, the kamatanas or the methods of practicing meditation. And uh, depending on the constitution, the makeup, the mind's makeup of the individual, Lord Buddha would give them an appropriate object of meditation. So there were bhikkhus who were more prone to handle such um, uh, meditation. Uh, so he would encourage them to go to the charnel ground. And uh, because there's fears that are happening also within, you know, and, and it has an impact on the body when you have fear, fear of ghosts show up, especially because they were not going there when the sun was up. They would go early in the morning when the bodies would be brought in and throughout the day. And this is after they have gone and, and on their pindapada and they've collected their food and have eaten and they're sitting there observing what's going on and sitting as close as possible to the place where the bodies are going are being burnt but they stay there even when the loved ones and relatives leave they stay there and the mind does so many different tricks on us when we are in such a place and there's so many stories from uh, different teachers talking about their students monks who felt they were being attacked by or followed by ghosts. Um, so some of them are quite hilarious. So further, he is fully attentive to the vanishing point of how the body's experienced, mindful of the point of passing away of its transitions and states and how they end while they are being felt through and with the body. So you're also observing. It's the same mechanism. This is the repetition part, uh, as some of you, rec you know, recognize uh, from what we covered last week. For all of these sections, Lord Buddha puts the effort to go over this very key part of the formula. And this is what, unfortunately, in most, if not all, translations gets to be dot, dot, dotted. 
ellipses comes in and it, we're deprived of this. And that's one of the reasons why I had them sent to you uh, so that you have the actual PDF, you could read it on your own. Um, I will read this portion with you so that you recollect. But as we move through the nine, it's a big chunk of material. So I want us to save some time. So, but at the same time, be fair to it. And that's why I highly encourage you to go over them yourself. And every single sentence really has a purpose. Lord Buddha would never teach something without it having a purpose. And the purpose always had to do with you, to liberate you, to give you all the tools, all the tools, not miss out on anything. So please do yourselves a big favor and, and make sure that you go over these repetitions, uh, even though I will skip through them today uh, after this portion. Also, he is fully attentive to both the beginning and vanishing points of how the body is experienced, mindful of both the point of origin and of passing away of these transitions and states as they arise and come to an end while they are being felt through and with the body. Further, um, he lives realizing that here there is in fact a body, but without being fixated on it, yet remaining relaxed by clearly knowing it and perceptively present to it. This especially comes in when the person looking at the body of someone else, who happens to be a total stranger in most cases, and suddenly there is this empathy at first, but it can quickly uh, seep into sympathy, into, oh, into pity, which is no longer empathy. So there is an identification. And that is where the fixation can come in, especially when there is the, uh, the presence of fear within us. Oh my, you mean to say that my body, I will also have to undergo this? I can present images, I love images, but I will abstain from doing so now because some people might not like it. So I'm holding myself back, but there's so much if you could allow your mind to take off and to just explore, use your own body, use your own, any parts of your body that you seem to have some kind of an affinity or special relationship with something that you've really taken good care of. And it's always in the crosshairs of your mind as something that deserves taking care of. Perhaps it's your left big toe, who knows? You know. Or maybe it's your liver. Maybe it's your eyes or your hair. Suddenly juxtapose that, put that, Photoshop it in your mind, place it on that body that you're seeing in your mind or in an image or in a video that is being cremated. But do it in increments, go in and out so you don't shock the system. Some of you might be well endowed to be able to go in and stay there for a while with those images together. How does that feel for you? And then applying, this is vipassana, 
after all, they were doing the Satipatthana. So we are observing what is happening to the mind as well. We're not just fixated on the body. There is tremendous opportunity for wisdom to take place, even when we're doing the body contemplations and meditations. So that is what Lord Buddha is always trying to put these words, these key phrases, without being fixated on the body. Understanding, first of all, that there is a body, but at the same time becoming relaxed in clearly knowing it and knowing life through it and my attachment to it and my attitude to whatever is taking place within and outside of the body. In this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. This also is how the bhikkhu meditates, while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states. In this modern age where everything is nicely wrapped, packaged, and the reality of things is is so far removed from us um, from, and, and from the average human being uh, that the person is simply kept sheltered from reality, if you will. We're sheltered from reality. But this comes with a, a, major, uh, a major problem because this lends the person, the average person, to be just numb and dumb, dumb towards reality to ask certain questions, to be shocked from an image like this, as if it happens to other people. When my grandmother uh, died, um, the first uh, grandmother died, I, I was so shocked and I was like, wait a minute, that's not supposed to happen in our family. It, I've heard about people dying in other families, so but I never thought it would actually be intruding into our space here. And then the brain started to take that information and say, wait a minute, apparently not. But that requires us to be honest, and um, which is contrary to what we have in the world today. We avoid at all costs um, seeing things as they truly are. Meanwhile, that is the premise of the Dhamma, yatabhutang pajanati, to be able to see how things come to be, how they happen. So we cannot be blindfolded and see the Dhamma. It's impossible. It's impossible. You have to be willing to take off the blindfolds if you want to taste the fruits of the Dhamma, otherwise you're doing some other thing, I don't know, which is not Dhamma. And there's plenty of teachers in the world who are doing that, bhikkhus. So we need to have the audacity to say, wait a minute, let me look behind the curtain. And one of them is... Uh, seeing the human body as it transitions after the person has breathed their last breath. And um, you see this person who just a little while ago, especially if you knew them, or yesterday or last week, was breathing fine. They were walking about doing things, had a life in them, 
their bodies did not smell. But now that is all gone. That is all gone. So being in the charnel ground, even, even in just mentally, if you can just make room for that in your mind, really pulls you out of this, this Disney-esque way of living that the whole planet is plagued by. We need to shock the system. We need to, it's a necessity. We have to get startled if we are so stuck up and stuck in the mire of just make-believe reality that we're all living in. And then death becomes a very valuable event. Death itself, or when your body gets sick, it brings you back to reality. Instead of us wanting to run away from it or the possibility that I might get sick. Oh, I cannot tolerate that. So here is Lord Buddha's way to have us, to encourage us to pause, to observe, and to apply both mindfulness and wisdom to our bodies. Meaning by looking at our bodies and saying, oh, you too will die. That is most certain. Okay. That wasn't so bad, was it? But we need to say that more and more to ourselves to kind of make room for us to understand that the body will also suffer all these transformations. It's not just beautiful green grass and flowers that loved ones come in place at a cemetery. Although some of them might be really beautiful with beautiful statues, this and that, but what's really underneath? We cover things up. So that is very childish way of living. And um, that definitely does not bring mindfulness and, and uh, I mean, especially wisdom. Now we get to the second of the nine. Further bhikkhus, much like when the bhikkhu sees a corpse tossed aside in the charnel ground that is being devoured by hungry crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, and foxes, all fighting to get a piece of it, or being feasted upon, the body being feasted upon by various living beings. And he looks upon his own body and compares it to those in the charnel ground while pondering to himself. This body also will suffer the same end because it is of the same nature. Hence, it will only end up like that and therefore never be the exception. In fact, if you want to be adventurous, I would encourage you to take these, the, this last sentence, this body also will suffer the same end, and maybe copy paste it and put it under an image that is troublesome. <laughs> we have to push the envelope. We have to push the envelope um, to pull us out of the status quo. And put that maybe on a wall somewhere in your room not to shock other people, but just somewhere where it's in your space. So I would encourage students often to write things from the Dhamma on post-its, post-it notes or something, or just print it out, get a nice image, nice, uh, I'm being very loose here, uh, but just an image that is shocking to you though, and put that underneath it. You can even draw out a skeleton, that's fine too. 
And that is enough of, uh, you know, gives you a breather, as it were, especially when we're seeing the world in this state. We're just afraid of fear. That's so sad because there is absolutely no mindfulness and definitely no wisdom there. Meanwhile, a sentence like that from Lord Buddha can really be a breath of fresh air. So, um, after a week, uh, a terrible stench uh, that the body had in the cremation ground, uh, the stench is gone. The bad, bad smell is no longer as intense as it was. And um, it's, it's tolerable enough for hungry animals to come and, and feed on it. And... Um, and this does not happen only in Asia, by the way. If um, you know, you have seen in some inner cities and big cities, uh, metropolitan cities, you have places where you have dumps and trash and this and that, and uh, animals will come and eat those. So let us not put it in a cocoon and say, oh, this happens somewhere else, not here because the subconscious mind loves to do things like that, to kind of separate you from reality like that. Uh, so uh, thus the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. So I'm going to uh, start to skip those areas that I mentioned earlier. Uh, in this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. This also is how the bhikkhu meditates while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states. Sometimes bhikkhus would go to the charnel grounds uh, by, uh, with, with, in company, basically, with other bhikkhus. They would team up with another bhikkhu, so secretly what they're trying to do is not to feel so afraid especially at night um and um but the courageous ones are the ones who go sometimes at night because if you go in the morning you kind of familiarize yourself so it's normalized you just have to close your eyes and sit through it but to go in the middle of the night and you can still see probably the embers, some places of some of the spots where they had burned the bodies. So that generates tremendous fear and shock, especially you're going to hear the crackling of some firewood or animals who are coming to eat anything that's left around. Uh, further bhikkhus, this is the third uh, meditation. Further, bhikkhus, much like when the bhikkhu sees a corpse tossed aside in the charnel ground, seeing a skeleton with its flesh still attached, smeared with blood and held together by ligaments and veins. So the skin is still on. And he looks upon his own body uh, and compares it to those in the charnel ground while pondering to himself. This body also will suffer the same end because it is of the same nature. Hence, it will only end up like that and therefore never be the exception. And that is what we like to say to ourselves, that mantra, I will be the exception. 
I will be the exception. You have individuals today, educated, with degrees, with you know, well-to-do uh, individuals who believe that they will live forever. And they're saying science is on their side because they're putting so much energy and effort and money to create some type of a gene that will uh, shut down or some mechanism that will shut down the aging gene. <laughs> we have come up with so many ridiculous ideas to perpetuate this idea that I don't want to die. I want to be the exception. Anicca does not exist for me. I want to eradicate dukkha from my life. It's like that farmer who goes around walking around on, on barefoot on jagged rocks and he, he's fed up with it. I've, you've probably heard me say this a few times, this, this story. And this farmer gets tired because he has like bleeding feet and, and because the rocks and, are so sharp and things. So he goes home and he gets himself some of the animal hide that he has. And he starts laying them out in front of his porch, on the ground, on the part of the road. And he says, oh, that's it. I figured it out. I have to cover the whole planet, the whole town, the whole, every road system with animal hide, leather. So it becomes more tolerable. Fortunately, his friends get there on time before he slaughters the animals to get their hides. And one of them is courageous enough to take one of those pieces of leather and cut up a piece or two and tie him again, you know, around his feet, this, this farmer's feet, and says, go ahead and walk. Wherever you go now, it's going to be soft. You don't have to change the world around you. But that's what we do, don't we? We're always trying to change the world instead and saying, I want to feel comfortable and safe, so I have to change everything that is jagged and sharp and displeasing. We can never be able to do that. It's impossible. But we can eradicate anicca, dukkha, anatta from our hearts, which takes more responsibility, doesn't it? It takes effort. That's when we're actually engaged in the real work. The other is just like trying to go outside and change the world first is just, you know, we're fooling ourselves, plain and simple, and wasting valuable time because our bodies are going to be going through the same process as this, these rather. So whether we're willing or not, the body is undergoing it and it will undergo it. Um, so, um, Let's continue. Um, Thus, the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. In this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. This also is how the bhikkhu meditates, while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states. Further bhikkhus, much like when the bhikkhu sees a corpse that has turned into a skeleton, removed from its flesh, smeared with blood and held together by ligaments and veins. 
and he looks upon his own body and compares it to those in the charnel ground while pondering to himself, this body also will suffer the same end because it is of the same nature. Hence, it will only end up like that and therefore never be the exception. In uh, north of India, in fact, in uh, plateaus of, of Tibet, uh, there is the culture of, uh, um, of, of uh, first giving the body of the deceased to um, um, bringing the body to a place where there are individuals whose profession it is, profession, it is to chop it up into pieces, the body. And uh, this happens way up uh, like on the slopes of mountains or uh, on the mountains themselves in secluded areas where people can go and look and witness from afar. Because what also happens is as these individuals are cutting and breaking, uh, using all kinds of tools to break the bones and, and make them into smaller chunks, as it were, for the vultures who are waiting to come and take off and remove any edible parts of it. I know this will sound some uh, uh, uncomfortable for some people. Uh, so um, I, I'm part of me, you know, living in the, you know, the Western world is saying, okay, why don't I give the waiver or something? You know, why don't I say you can skip this part or adult content or something? Um, that's the, that defeats the whole purpose. Um, and YouTube has the option of saying, is this for children or not? So thankfully there's that box and I can just hit that. And, but anyhow, the vultures then eat the flesh off and they leave the bones. Now the bones are collected then, and then they are crushed into fine powder. And then they are handed over to the family. And uh, because wood, I mean, that also has a cultural element to it, ecological element to it, because, <clears throat> excuse me, in the upper plateaus of Tibet, you don't have that many trees because mostly it's permafrost. Nothing grows much. And it's, if it does, you know, the yak are going to come and eat them and they eat the yak and the, the, uh, the, the dairy out of it. So there is the cultural aspect of it, but it nevertheless provides, yes, there's no cremation there as much as you would see in India, for example, or in Indonesia and places like that. Um, but nevertheless, the body is seen as it's going through this um, breaking apart aspect of it. It's, it's, it's no longer, um, what the person has known this person to be for 60, 70, 80 years, however long the person had lived, now the vultures are there. And that does so much to the body. It's traumatic, yes. If we don't handle it well, if we don't handle it well. I'm pausing on this because it is so important given the time period that we're living in. I grew up in wartime in Lebanon, and I've seen, I once said, 
shared with you here how one time we were taken to a place as a family, as a community, somewhat distant in the forest, secluded area, to see what human beings had done to other human beings. There was a mound that was created by human bodies. Men, women, children, elderly, you name it. They had all been burnt alive. The stench of it I could still feel. It was so, and, and the sight and how we were all in tears. We were crying and I kept on pulling my mom's like hand, like, why, mom, why, why, dad, why? What did these people do? And they were crying. We didn't know why they had done this. But it was apparently having to do with religious and uh, things and people were just being stopped in the middle of the road and pulled out of their cars and put on a, uh, a truck and a flatbed and just taken away. And they didn't do anything. So simply because their names didn't match or they had a la the wrong last name or they were Christian or they were Muslim. These facts are real. What we see on Netflix is not. What we see uh, in, in, in the shows and the, the iPhone that we get, the movies, the next news piece. I just wish these people who start wars and do these atrocious or build the weapons, those so-called peaceful countries that are the number one producers of weaponry. And then they wash their hands. Hey, I didn't have anything to do with this. Those are the ones who need to see how their own loved ones would, if they go through something like this, if they lose a loved one to war, if they get shot once or feel what a shrapnel wound feels like when you miss a limb, you, you lost a limb because of it. They would never start wars. So I just want to pause and, and mention that because of how the world is unfolding these days. And we need to see at some point that in such places, the, that whole area becomes a charnel ground. And it's uncomfortable. Children in Yemen, for example, or Afghanistan, who have been bombarded for years. Now we have it in Ukraine for a few days and everybody's talking about it, but we never hear about Yemen. We never hear about Palestine. They've been undergoing injustice, persecution for over 60, 70, 80 years. No one hears about it. But those children in Yemen, for example, are wiser than many of us, even though they're four times younger than an average adult male, but they're more, they have a more real approach to life because they know the reality. And that is what we need to bridge, that gap, to become more intimate and mature in our relationship towards life and specifically towards our bodies. And stop telling lies about, uh, about life to our bodies, that this will never happen to me. No, it will, guaranteed. So let me check my relationship to all of this. Where is my mindfulness when I'm eating food? When I'm enjoying something? When I'm taking a nap? Am I living in my cocoon, the world that I've constructed for myself? 
The Dhamma is all about life. Dhamma is life. Our perception of the Dhamma oftentimes has nothing to do with the Dhamma. And that's one of the reasons why this, especially today's, this portion of the um, uh, establishments of mindfulness can be uncomfortable, if not startling for some people. But it is re required, <laughs> reading material, as they say. We have to go through this to evolve out of the numbness that we have been indoctrinated by and continue to be so in the world today. So this is you doing your own research on life instead of looking at the tube, the TV, whatever. Whatever the news are, mainstream news are throwing in us, at us. That's all bogus. This is real. Thus, the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. Further, bhikkhus, much like when the bhikkhu sees a corpse that has turned into a skeleton without any flesh left or blood that is still held together with ligaments and veins, and he looks upon his own body and compares it to those in the charnel ground while pondering to himself, this body also will suffer the same end, because it is of the same nature. Hence, it will only end up like that, and therefore never be the exception. Um, at one point in the practice of this type of um, meditation, the teacher will encourage the individual to bring the charnel ground with them, the, for the student, that is, excuse me, into their daily lives, meaning when they're eating, when they're observing the body, when you're sitting down, let's say, <clears throat> in a sitting posture, and you're looking down at your palms or your hand or your feet, you're no longer just taking it for granted. You're using basically Vipassana's x-ray vision to pierce through and see the bones. And some uh, individuals go so deep into this practice that um, they see nothing but bones. Bhante Nyanananda's kuti, the small kuti in uh, Sri Lanka, when he was alive and lived there, uh, as you entered it, there was a skeleton hanging. <laughs> he wasn't trying to scare anything off, any person off of the property of you know, of his kuti, the small, unpretentious, damp place of living, his domicile. No, he wasn't. He was scaring off, if anything, delusion, ignorance, and his attachment to the body. And uh, in his later years, he had become so frail that he had become a skeleton, almost. And, um, but, you know, you can be a healthy uh, person physically who practices this. You don't have to starve yourself. And uh, having a skeleton um, is really, really helpful. Um, uh, or even a picture of it to shock you. So, um, in this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. By the way, the shocking part is not the goal. 
I know I keep saying that, but it's simply to remove the smudges, the layers, the thick, thick dust from our eyes, from our understanding, from wisdom. Oh, I'll have this tomorrow. Oh, this great thing is going to happen to me tomorrow in a few minutes. So let me really get jazzed up about that, get excited about life. No, all that is the dust. So it might be a hug, it might be a smile also that can bring you to the present moment. But one of the best ones is this technique, as pointed by Lord Buddha. Further bhikkhus, much like when the bhikkhu sees a corpse that has turned into a skeleton with its bones pulled apart and scattered. So now we are seeing the skeleton no longer in one piece. To uh, scattered, tossed here and there as he sees the bones of the hand in one place or the feet in another place or the knee in yet another place or a thigh bone here, a hip bone there. Here a piece of the spine and there a skull. And he looks upon his own body and compares it to those in the charnel ground while pondering to himself, this body also will suffer the same end because it is of the same nature. Hence, it will only end up like that and therefore never be the exception. Of course, this allows the person to go so deep that they, it affects other aspects of your life, meaning the way you would taste ice cream, for example, if you were a fan of ice cream, suddenly might change. The way you eat food, your favorite, favorite food is placed in front of you and you're about to eat. Please don't shun away the images that might come from this meditation. Now, don't dwell on the scout because there are stories uh, one time with Ajahn Man, one of his uh, students, a lay woman um, who had been practicing patikula, uh, basically the repulsive, uh, the asubas in a sense. And she was looking at every single bowl of food that she would about to start to eat as nothing but uh, her own feces. She couldn't help it, but she was seeing it as, you know, a ball of nastiness. So that was so, um, uh, uh, well, it was so intolerable that she stopped eating because she couldn't bear herself. This was her favorite food, but she couldn't help but to see her own, the contents of her stomach in the bowl of food instead of the delicious or smelling whatever. So finally, when Ajahn Man revisits that town, that small town, and she goes and she tells him of this, and first he sees her demeanor, and he's like, what's going on with you? Why? What are you doing wrong? And she says, oh, I must be developing because every time I sit down to eat, I am seeing my own excrement. And he scolds her. He says, no, 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 you've gone off the rails here. That's an extreme. The same thing here. You know, this path is all about wisdom. This is a wisdom path. We don't go to an extreme of just like, oh, this is it. This is life. We have to always be shocked. And da, 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 da. that's what Bhante is saying. That's what the Lord Buddha is saying, obviously. No, no, no. That's how Lord Buddha, before being the Buddha, lived. 
as an ascetic, that's not it. We have to use these tools to find the middle ground. And every time we find ourselves attached to the body, bring that, these images in. Every time you feel like you're losing the balance of your mind because you're attracted to someone or because you want to really keep a very, very healthy, youthful skin or body. Use these images. And he encouraged her to start eating again and to be cognizant that this is going to end up as excrement. Yes, but now you, eat, you need to eat food. So she finally starts eating and she's, um, uh, she becomes better uh, and starts practicing in the right way. In this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. This also is how the bhikkhu meditates, while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states. Further bhikkhus, much like when the bhikkhu sees a corpse that has been tossed aside in the charnel ground as he sees its bones turned white, the color of shells, and he looks upon his own body and compares it to those in the charnel ground, while pondering to himself, this body also will suffer the same end, because it is of the same nature. Hence, it will only end up like that, and therefore never be the exception. So you see here that that old, um, well, it is old, I guess, but it's, it's continuous. I see it sometimes um, where you have parents' dilemma when they have young children who knew of, let's say, grandmother or someone in the family who is no longer there. This is a dilemma that many parents, especially coming from Judeo-Christian background, have to struggle with sometimes, especially if you're living in a modern, you know, developed city and you're well off, you're educated. So how we, do we negotiate death into this whole scene? And that's where you usually get, oh, grandpa is somewhere in heaven now, he's looking down upon us. That completely nullifies whatever we're doing here. It completely uh, avoids the topic of death. We just overshot it. We just, it doesn't exist anymore, does it? So now the person simply has to deal with the missing part, the missing of grandpa, grandmother, or somebody who was there, but now is not there. And this is where a lot of people do end up breaking precepts. Remember, it doesn't matter if you know you're taking precepts or not, ultimately, because we are breaking them, nevertheless, if the person is breaking them, obviously. So they don't necessarily have to be taking the five precepts. So uh, the intention, obviously, is, needs to be there. That's what makes it come after all. So um, it would be wiser for such parents to say, Johnny, grandpa died. What does that mean, mom? Well, he went through this process. This body does only stay for a while. But many people are afraid that, oh my God, my child is going to have nightmares. Well, that's where you need to sit down and speak to them about the generational, the generational uh, progression that we've had as a species. And you can use animal examples, this and that, to relate them, bring them back, to help them to learn to emotionally self-regulate and calm down. 
and your demeanor says everything. During these past two years, children have become obsessed with fear thanks to the fear that they've been observing in their adults, uh, caretakers. So horrific. We have been stigmatizing and traumatizing the children. As if it's not enough now, schools are doing their part, unbeknownst to the parents. Traumatizing children. So that's one of the worst things that a, a human being goes through because whatever the child's brain is exposed to, that's going to scar them, in, case, in this case, trauma, it will be scarred. The brain will be scarred for the rest of their lives. That means it will affect every single relationship, including, including the relationship they would have or need to have, rather, with their bodies, with their minds, with themselves. So we are completely oblivious to this as we are promoting this fear. And the children have to be playing outside. When it comes to fear, yeah, fine, Johnny, we, every, everyone has to die, but go ahead and play your ball now with your friends. So that makes it okay then for the child to say, oh, oh, so that is there. I'm, I don't like it, but it's there. Mom says that it is part of the equation. Look at dad. He's smiling. He's talking with his friends. He's not freaking out. So I'm mentioning these things because they go hand in hand, given the context of life that we're going through, all of us globally. So uh, that's why I'm pausing to branch out to all these pertinent parts of life that we are all touched by, but especially the future generation of humans living on this planet. So uh, in this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. Further, bhikkhus, much like when the bhikkhu sees a corpse that has been tossed aside in the charnel ground as he sees its decaying bones that have been decaying for over a year under the sun. Um, in some suttas, they say over a year, up to three years. Basically, a long time has passed where the bones are out in the open. And he looks upon his own body and compares it to those in the charnel ground while pondering to himself, this body also will suffer the same end because it is of the same nature. Hence, it will only end up like that and therefore never be the exception. Um, Lord Buddha has said that if, uh, I don't remember the sutta, um, um, but he said how um, if, if our bones did not decay, erode over time, then the bones that we've had in all of the countless lives that we've lived, they could easily have made, formed into a thickly packed Himalayan mountain. Himalayas are the rooftop of the world. So if you've ever seen them, they're huge. They dwarf most of the other mountains in size. They're huge. Imagine. In one kalpa, he says, just in one kalpa, the amount of bones that you left behind or lived, used them, and then left them behind, 
If those bones did not erode, they could have easily made a very thick mountain like a Himalayas. That's a powerful image. And there's other places where teachers have said, if we gather all the bones that you've had, they could easily cover up the whole entire surface of this planet, including the oceans, by the way. That's 75% of the surface area of this planet, covered entirely with our skeletons, our skulls, our bones, our hip bones, our thigh bones, our pinky bones. But we never think about this. We never give it a time of day of consideration. This really expands the mind. And it also, also is one of the best ways to address fear. Because what are we afraid of? Death. Well, look at this. Bones. Each of those skeleton pieces, the collection, each of that grouping of bones represented a life. Multitudes of relationships in one life. Likes, dislikes, all kinds of stories. But they're all forgotten now. Something to really think about. Thus the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. Further, bhikkhus, this is the last one of the charnel grounds, by the way. Um, Further bhikkhus, much like when the bhikkhu sees a corpse that has been tossed aside in the charnel ground and he sees its bones already decomposed into fine powder. And he looks upon his own body and compares it to those in the charnel ground while pondering to himself, this body also will suffer the same end because it is of the same nature. Hence, it will only end up like that and therefore never be the exception. So this practice is a way to pull us out of the world of make-believe. Uh, and despite the fact that we have done a great job at covering it up, um, it only takes like one instance of one moment of us pondering this or seeing a picture in Thailand, in Sri Lanka, in Burma, um, the bhikkhus are uh, not a surprise to be seen at the morgue, meaning they get special uh, field trips organized to go to the morgues in hospitals to walk around and the uh, individual, the physician, or I forgot what you mentioned, uh, what, what you call the person who works at the morgue, but basically they would show them. And sometimes they will see autopsies. Some bhikkhus will not be able to tolerate it. And they will, you know, uh, have a bodily reaction. They get nauseous, etc. But this is a powerful meditation. Yes, it is not for everyone, but everyone needs to know about the reality of death. Come on. Life is not about eating, sleeping, procreating, going to the bathroom, and having fun. Those are aspects of life, of course, but they're not life complete. 
because this will help us to understand better our relationship with other things that really matter in the progress that is to be made, meaning things like emotions like fear, jealousy, whatever we experience in our hearts. We can cover up other things that the body will die. We can cover that up, but <clears throat> we cannot cover up the fear. We cannot cover up the jealousy, the anger, the hatred, the resentment in our hearts. We can do it temporarily, but when we come across the Dhamma, those will not. It's like a house of cards that's just going to collapse. And the reality will show up. This technique is uh, the quicker way. It's like the fast track into pulling the rug from under our own deceptions, the deceptions that we have been telling ourselves. And society has been helping us to perpetuate such a thing. So uh, we need to put our hopes in the place that really matters the most. And it's not the body. It's not the saving of the body. Lord Buddha never came here to save the body of the person. That is ridiculous. I mean, if you have traditions that later developed that gave you like a in, you know, uh, what was it? Um, infinity of life or forever life in a different Buddha realm, something where you have endless, endless time to attain paths and fruits of the Dhamma. Complete rubbish, nonsense. Just one exposure to the reality of life, such as in the charnel ground, could be enough to demolish our deceptions. If the person is really willing to practice sati, and let panya grow. And that is taking ownership of your life because we don't know when we will be next. I mean, we, we heard it nine times that my body is also going to suffer the same fate. But we don't know when. We don't know when. And no, it's not going to come later on in life when you think that you're completely useless. The body doesn't work. You, never, you can't even drink a sip of water. No, it doesn't mean that it's only going to happen at that point later on in this distant, foggy future. No. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen today. We don't know in this world of uncertainty. So might as well start placing the attention on the thing that really matters. So, uh, in this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. This also is how the bhikkhu meditates, while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states. Next, we go into the observation of feelings, or meditation on feelings, which is Vedana Upasana. Now, remember, this is the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, so we're going into depth, uh, into the depth of, of the Satipatthana. And how bhikkhus is a bhikkhu fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever feeling that is occurring, mindful of it in all its transitions. Remember, uh, typically in the Dhamma, the way we have uh, in this Dhamma and discipline, Dhamma and Vinaya, the way Lord Buddha taught the Dhamma, 
we primarily recognize feeling as coming in three shapes or phases. Uh, pleasant or pleasurable feeling, painful or unpleasant feeling, and neutral or neither pleasurable nor painful feeling. So these are primarily, of course, when you study the Dhamma in depth and, and um, really uh, see the different nuances, you get to the nuances of feeling. And Lord Buddha has described, in, uh, described feelings as, in some places, as many more than just three aspects comprising it. Uh, so, uh, but to simplify, we always recognize it as it's in its three aspects. And here we're going to see them uh, mentioned by Lord Buddha. Again, this, the person who's speaking here uh, is Lord Buddha. Here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu closely observes while experiencing a happy feeling. As he knows, this feeling I'm experiencing is a happy one. Or while experiencing a painful feeling, he knows this feeling I'm having is a painful one. Or while experiencing a neutral feeling, he knows this feeling I'm having is neither a happy nor a painful one, for it is neutral. Again, <clears throat> excuse me, we are cutting through concepts, our own concepts, our own expectations, our own storylines, frameworks, narratives, paradigms. We're cutting through them one by one. That's why we can call this the most powerful method the satipatthana, to bring delusion, to tear it apart. We're cutting out all concepts, thoughts, assumptions, or whatever uh, that we think is happening, should be happening, when it is just thought about. And so it pulls us out of papancha land, of this mental proliferation, ongoing, the continuum of mental proliferations that we are constantly engaged in. Oftentimes we are running the engine, as it were, this thing called life, the mind, this thing that we say, I am being conscious now, simply being run on anusayas, for example. Hidden tendencies, latent tendencies often, or dormant tendencies, but Habitual tendencies, nevertheless. <clears throat> Sometimes we think that we are coming from a genuinely, naturally, real, in-the-moment place. When we're not. Because we have a lot of feelings and hidden agendas, emotions tied to that. So, it's like cleaning your kitchen. I was describing this to a student the other day. If uh, I, I, I would notice this, especially when I used to make uh, eggs, for example, scrambled eggs or whatever in the kitchen. And uh, you clean everything up afterwards, the pots and pans, the forks, utensils, whatever you use, the surface areas. But somehow, if you spilled any of the eggs anywhere, even a drop of it, it will smell. And it will attract small animals, insects ants, etc. Plus, it will smell, you know, funky. So what do you do? You have to go ahead and sometimes really, really get your nose onto the countertop 
really getting your nostrils so close to smell exactly where is it coming it is coming from maybe it's some parts of it are caught within the fork those openings i don't know what they're called the digits the the beginning points of the forks you know the portions of the, the things that stick out maybe they're hiding some part of the eggs are still left over there residue so you can think of them as res residue of well, Lobadosa uh, Moha. Even though on the surface everything looks clean. And this is where it's important for us to be honest, and especially when we have Kalyanamittas, spiritual friends with us. And especially they have to be honest when they notice something. And if we have the luxury of having a teacher, the teacher will point these things out. Perhaps your aspiration to even be practicing meditation might actually be based on a bunch of anusayas. The smell of eggs. Ugh. Or the smell. It could be something else. It could be excrement. It could be something bad. But smelly nevertheless. So it might be, you know, the person might have become acclimated to the smell until someone else comes into the scene. And that is where a teacher's presence or a Kalyanamitta's presence really is so helpful because it points out, uh, excuse me, have you looked at why you say it like that? Or what is the attitude of our mind? Oh, I'm curious. What is your attitude of your mind right now when you're saying these things? When you want to advance in the practice? Or you want to tell me about your practice without me asking you about it? There might be some conceit going on, inferiority conceit, or look at me, look at me, I'm doing better, which means I'm a performer. I'm not living the moment. All these nuances are aspects of the anusayas. So, but it requires honesty for the person to drop back down into their heart and see what is the nature of this feeling, honestly. Is it pleasant, painful? Or is it neutral? Similarly, the bhikkhu closely observes while experiencing a happy feeling through contact with his body, as he knows. This feeling I'm experiencing through contact with my body is a happy one. Every time you touch something that is pleasant to the touch, see if you can bring this mindfulness with you, this sati with you. Fortunately, wherever you go, you're taking your body with you. So we don't have any excuses to exclude satipatthana. At least you have the breath, right? But Lord Buddha is making it even more, opening it up even more for us. Every time there's a contact with the body that is happy, it causing you a happy state. Check. You're not judging. Again, you're not judging, nor are you noting. You are not noting because that is an extra few steps being added. So there is a cognitive element added to it and which deters or at least prolongs the process of awakening. I know commentaries have said a lot about noting, and, but that actually makes things harder and it makes it less, live, less of a living experience by adding more steps, unnecessarily so, by the way. So 
or while experiencing a painful feeling through contact with his body, he knows this feeling I'm experiencing through contact with my body is a painful one. So when you are sitting in meditation and suddenly your knee starts to hurt, or both, or your ankle, or your back, or your neck, instead of quickly readjusting the position, giving yourself, cutting yourself some slack by readjusting the body to give it a more comfortable position. First, before even becoming aware of your intention to move the body, let us pause and just observe the feeling that is generated. Because there was a contact. And because of the contact, there is feeling. The contact was a painful one. Uh, 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 let's say, before even uh, the recognition of a painful one, that is, there was perhaps some pinching for some biological, physiological reason. The conditions were there for that to happen. Now, because you have a, a functioning brain, you have a body that feels, and you have a brain that perceives. So you have those both, the object and the organ, of the body, you have the consciousness, body consciousness, which is not a third thing, by the way, it just happens because of these two coming together. Because of that, all of a sudden you have contact. Okay, the contact occurred, and all of a sudden now I am swimming, drifting, floating in this ocean of feeling a certain way. Unfortunately, despite its such importance, we completely neglect it. And we just jump and react according to it, pushing ourselves away if it's a painful one or moving towards it if it's a pleasurable one. But most of the time, we're completely oblivious of the neutral ones, like how it feels right now, um, your knee touching the clothing that you're wearing. Until I said so, you're, you were completely unaware of it, unless you were actually thinking about it for some reason. So feelings then become another conduit for us to go in and probe. So we need to first be paying attention. That's why it's called sati. We need to be paying attention, remembering, okay, am I on the meditation object? Okay, what am I, what am I on? Is it the breath? What is, what is this? No mental dialogue, monologue. But enough so that we know that, yes, there is this feeling. Instead of saying, oh, oh, that's a painful, oh, ah, that hurts. Because I already took it as me now. I am hurting. I'm in pain. Or... Oh, I love the taste of this pizza. It's delicious. Ah. We completely skipped the step on looking at the feeling. Similarly, the bhikkhu closely observes while experiencing a happy feeling that is beyond the body, as he knows. This feeling I'm experiencing that is beyond the body is a happy one. Or while experiencing a painful feeling that is beyond the body, as he knows, this feeling I'm experiencing that is beyond the body is a painful one. 
or while experiencing a neutral feeling that is beyond the body, he knows this feeling I'm experiencing that is beyond the body is neither a happy nor a painful one, for it is neutral. This section act, uh, can create some um, issues or questions at least, presents uh, some questions in the minds of uh, individuals, of course, uh, because it says, what do you mean by Bhante with, with beyond the body? Well, you could say related with the body or, uh, or in this case, uh, uh, or unrelated with the body. Sometimes they're called mundane. Sometimes they're called uh, <clears throat> um, anyhow, just here we're saying I'm experiencing that is beyond the body, feeling that is beyond the body. So something that you are not physically experiencing, meaning nobody's coming and tapping you on the shoulder. There is not a, 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 a uh, pinch that you're feeling as you did, for example, in your knee, um, as I was mentioning earlier. But something that you're nevertheless feeling. Nobody came and caressed your hair or touched your skin, but it's such a soothing feeling. Well, what we're talking about here often uh, uh, is described as a, a jhanic experience. When we are experiencing something, but it nevertheless is happening without doing anything with the body. Nothing is touching it. But suddenly you're feeling this incredible soothing sensations happening in your body. You have these goose flesh, goosebumps happening all over your body. PT, for example, is a perfect example of such a, uh, such a feeling. It's so soothing. It's, it's so calming. And um, there's many examples of, uh, of that. Uh, when you have the tranquility of mind taking place as you're preparing, uh, what I'm mentioning, by the way, in case you didn't notice, it's, it's the seven factors of awakening. Piety comes in joy. That's the ultimate form of joy that we can experience. And uh, the bojanga factor of joy, piety. Uh, and then that opens the door for tranquility, pasadhi to come in. That's another form of a happy feeling that is beyond the body. Now, coming to the uh, painful feeling. This is a, a hard one, a hard nut to crack, in a sense, as they say, because uh, some people have really uh, struggled with this to understand what this could mean. Uh, it's not that complicated. Uh, the perfect example would be this, uh, for me at least, uh, when you are uh, practicing meditation, you're practicing the three trainings, sila, samadhi, panya, and you have gone through some stages, and you want to attain, let's say, the first stage. You want to become a sotapanna, not because of a goal. This is not originating in some anusaya, by the way. This is coming from a genuine place of wanting to see the Dhamma, see the Dhamma with the Dhamma eye to break through sansara, to pierce through it. And uh, there's a deep sadness that comes when the person 
sees that they are not there yet. And they read suttas for years and they see how beggars and people who are illiterate, this and that, and they come in and all of a sudden they just like attain sotapanna state. Like that uh, pregnant woman, when we covered the Hemavata Sutta, who had visited her parents' home, uh, and she got up to the terrace at the roof, at the top level of their palace, and it was so hot, so she goes outside, but there are these yakkas talking about Lord Buddha having attained and about his teaching the Dhamma Chakrapavattana. Just hearing the accolade, she gets full of sadha, so much faith and confidence in the triple gem that she attains sotapanna stage. Now, a person here on the other end experiencing that and being moved by it but not having seen with the Dhamma eye is experiencing a painful feeling that is beyond the body. That would be, for me, a perfect example for this, whatever Lord Buddha is describing. And while experiencing a neutral feeling that is beyond the body, he knows this feeling I'm experiencing that is beyond the body is neither a happy nor a painful one, for it is neutral. I've heard some teachers say that upekka, the state of equanimity, is or could be considered as the neutral. But at the same time, I've also heard teachers say um, that upekka itself is a pleasant feeling. Now, if you've ever experienced upekka, it's, it defies categorization in that sense. It's definitely not indifference. Uh, and some people have a tough time, that's why, with the neutrality, neutrality, the term for it, and because many people think of neutral also as indifferent. So, um, so that's, uh, and some teachers have said about boredom, for example, as being a neutral feeling. Meanwhile, I consider boredom as uh, an unpleasant feeling, a painful feeling which has uh, the, um, uh, everything to do with the understanding of the practitioner. So, and that's another thing. Uh, it's always important for us to look at the, especially when we are reading a sutta that where we see the protagonists being the uh, uh, Narahant, a disciple of Lord Buddha, giving a lecture or talk on a discourse on something that um, started with Lord Buddha, a phrase, or somebody comes in with a question. And then they go back to check with Lord Buddha to see, which is a beautiful quality to have, to go and check with the teacher. Bhante, uh, Venerable Mahakachana, or Venerable Sariputta, or Venerable Mahamogalana, we were engaging in a conversation with him, and they said this. And Lord Buddha would smile, and there's examples where um, um, one specific question was asked to, uh, from different uh, uh, the Arya Salakas, the noble disciples, the, the, the Arahants. And these people, these bhikkhus, go and check with Lord Buddha, and Lord Buddha says that they were all correct, even though on surface level you look and they're like, there's, there's a distinct, uh, there's a difference in these answers. 
And Lord Buddha brings up the, the, the quality of the individual's own experiencing of these truths as, uh, as authentic. And that is the common denominator. But each of them have uh, or has a different purview of the thing in question. And they do not counteract each other, though. They're different. They're not exactly the same, but they're not contradicting each other. And that's how Lord Buddha gives his, uh, as it were, stamp of approval to these. Unless the person saying it, as you have the example of Sati and the son of a fisherman, you have Malunkyaputta, you have Udayin, all these other bhikkhus at one point or another, misrepresenting the teaching of the Lord Buddha. And Lord Buddha would just like, you know, call them over and ask them, is this what you said, et cetera. So, um, and just chastise them for it and, and correct, give them the correct teaching. So, um, so if you could look at the neutrality in that part. So if it makes sense for you to use Upeka, I'm okay with that. It's, it's like, uh, ultimately, the key thing here is for you to be observant of these three phases of feelings. That's all. That's how I would approach it, instead of going into the Abhidhamma, because if you open up the Abhidhamma, good luck. It's such a thick, thick jungle, you're not going to get out of it, you know, uh, <laughs> awakened. How about that? Uh, that's my own interpretation, of course. Some might disagree completely with that. Uh, and uh, so the key thing to remember is that your acknowledgement, your understanding, you're seeing that there is this, there is in fact this particular feeling and being able to distinguish it from other types of feelings. And here is where we need to understand when we say to acknowledge, to understand, to be mindful that there is a feeling, what we are aiming for is the beginning seeing that the feeling has started. Now, many of us, we will not be able to catch it, capture it right at the beginning point. We might catch it, we might see it, the mindfulness, and we, we all have to start from somewhere. So some of us might be able to see it in the midpoint. Or some of us might see it way at the vanishing point when it's about to dissipate and disappear. These are all good. We have to start from somewhere. Eventually, the idea is to see it right when it's starting to arise, following it and watching it as it disappears. We do that a few times a day, and the quality of the mind is such superlative. Insights come in. Yatabu Tankvajanati becomes a fact of life for you. Why? Because every feeling is not going unnoticed, or at least a percentage of them. And slowly, slowly, that percentage rises. Until everywhere you go, you're aware. You're aware. Nothing is escaping you. Thus, the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with his feelings, mindful of them. I hope this, this sentence now makes even more sense based on what I shared with you mindful of them in all their transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. And remember, feelings are not under our control, just like the body is not our, under our control. 
we have some, you know, you can position or situate the body in a certain place, but whatever happens to the body is not under our control. And similarly, you might be feeling so good at one in one moment, but not so good in the next. And this is where the turmoil starts. At this point, we are not in the eye of the hurricane anymore. We are way out there in its arms and it's, we're being thrashed around. We're just being demolished on this roller coaster ride of emotions because now we cannot even see feelings. We're just lost from in, in the ocean, tumultuous ocean of emotions. We're just lost. And there's definitely no mindfulness there. So trying to catch as much, as many as possible of these feelings as they're occurring without saying, well, why did that emotion come? I was, uh, I was, I was fine here. I wasn't bothering anybody. I was enjoying this lovely, lovely PT. And all of a sudden, it's just bland. Nothing's happening. That can also be seen as the neutral feeling, by the way. But there's the identification which causes the problem. That's where we go from the eye of the hurricane out into its edges. And we're completely lost. In this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive carefully staying with whatever feelings that are occurring, mindful of them. This is also how the bhikkhu meditates while being fully attentive, carefully staying with feelings, mindful of them in all their transitions and states. So eventually the, 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 the person is being uh, able to, to, to realize how feelings exist or arise because of a few factors. They arise because of previous action, either by us or somebody else, or contextually causes conditions it arises because of ignorance and uh, our attachment also attachment and uh, which also means that uh, uh, feelings uh, um, do not arise because there was no previous action done uh, and there is no ignorance and when we say ignorance means there is uh, a lack of sati at one point, um, let's say something as gross of an image as possible is, is this, is, uh, touching a, a, a hot stovetop. There was an action. There was ignorance because there was no sati. And now I'm holding my hand and saying, ooh, my finger, my finger, my finger. I'm attached to the body. So that would be an example. And not having these three factors can be an example of uh, they're not having the, uh, the feeling of it. Again, so long as we're alive, we're going to have feelings because some people might think, well, does that mean that the arahants don't have feelings one day? No, they do. It's just that they're not overtaken or led by those feelings. They understand the appearance and the disappearance of feelings. There is understanding. They're, they've gone beyond the point of mere mindfulness of these feelings. And sometimes they would even be able to see the feeling as it is about to start. It hasn't started yet. 
but they see it starting. And midpoint, and they see it dissolve. Um, yeah, so because ultimately you can think of the feelings as the production, the product of our thoughts, concepts, um, emotions, uh, residual thoughts, um, sensations, um, and especially the, 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 the mental proliferations, the papanchas. So we are in this constant turmoil. So we don't practice meditation to just get to a nice restful place to relax. That's only a tiny, 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 tiny little piece of the tip of the iceberg as to why we meditate. Because the person is owning their whole experience now. They're realizing, oh, what is my contribution to this whole mass of suffering? Because I'm contributing, apparently. And uh, that's when we are seeing, when we say attachment, taking things uh, personally should be a good definition for it. Um, so, um, uh, okay, yeah, we can start now the observation of the chitta. Um, I want to cover the chitta also because next week, otherwise it's really going to be long because we're dealing with the Dhammanupasana and that is the massive part. Uh, <clears throat> it's more than a third of the sutta. So I'm trying to, uh, if you could indulge uh, me, just, just uh, one more section. And this is not as long. This is the observation of the chitta or the chittanupasana. Oftentimes uh, translated as uh, mind contemplation or um, uh, mental states, etc. Um, I prefer to keep it as chitta because it is much broader, uh, wider uh, of a significance. That's why Lord Buddha used it versus using what he would normally have used for mind, that would be mano, which he didn't. So, um, and how bhikkhus is a bhikkhu fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever states that are occurring in the chitta part, mindful of it in all its transitions and states. Here bhikkhus, the bhikkhu, while closely observing the presence of passionate craving in his chitta, he knows there is passionate craving in the chitta. Or while closely observing the absence of passionate craving in his chitta, he knows the chitta is free from passionate craving. So you are observing, whether you want to use the word mind or heart or chitta, it's really up to you. I just wanted to present it to you the way that I understand it uh, as a practitioner, as, as a person who studied this and, and, and trying to make sense of the sutta as I translated it um, from those points of view um, in a way where it can be usable, practical, and of a different caliber, different flavor than the others uh, that we see. The others, I mean, the four establishments of mindfulness, especially the Dhammanupasana that is about to come, uh, that will start next week. Often, we are completely neglectful of where we are coming from. Earlier, I was mentioning about the Anusayas. Here, they would fit beautifully. 
Is there anusaya in my heart? Is there, meaning passionate craving? I want to tell you of my experience of this jhana. Okay, why? What's eating you up? Why do you feel like it's the end of the world if I don't say it? That means there is craving. In fact, passionate. I added the word passionate craving because the absence of it is translated as viraga. Raga is the lust or craving, you can think of it, or the greed. But viraga, we call it in English as dispassion, the absence of passion, the dissipation, the annihilation, the eradication of it. And oftentimes when we are in the midst of that desire to tell someone something, it's more than just a craving. Because craving for me, the English word doesn't hold that much weight. It doesn't have strong of a character as passionate being added to it as a qualifier. You can put lust there, I don't care. But as long as for you, it captures that sentiment, that feeling you're having in your heart, in your chitta, in your mind, where you feel like if I don't do this, all hell's going to break loose. If I don't tell you of what this other person has said about you, then, well, this is where this comes in. The person is practicing Chittanupasana is the person who stops themselves dead on their tracks and say, why am I feeling like I have to tell this person about the other? This is where you can also be practicing, inevitably, the sila portion of your training. You see how when I mention how sila cannot be practiced, at least as it goes up to the adhisila, the higher form of virtuous behavior, life um, um, it needs to have with it sati, and this is what we mean. Sati is what is bringing the wisdom to come and see, oh, 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 there is passionate craving, because this also designates the presence of dhamma-vichaya, which is all about panya. Similarly, bhikkhu, while closely observing the presence of anger or aversion in his chitta, he knows there is anger or aversion in the chitta. Or while closely observing the absence of anger or aversion in his chitta, he knows that chitta is free from anger or aversion. Uh, so it's not the words that people say. Um, in acting school years ago, I remember the, the teacher would say, uh, the words don't matter. It's what you embody, <clears throat> where what you fill up the words with. I can say something as neutral as uh, shut the window. But I could say those words, those three words, in ways where you know that I, I'm saying I love you. Or you know I'm saying I'm going to kill you. Or I hate you. So the words don't matter. We're going deep now. We're going even deeper than feelings level. And that's one of the reasons why I mentioned how when we're practicing satipatthana, there is a gradual process, a progress, if you will, that needs to be happening in the person before they get to the chittanupasana, which is this level. You're using the body. It's not like you graduated, you never look at the body, or the same with the feelings. No, these are helping you to point the finger back to 
in this case the chitta, which is the higher level of practicing mindfulness compared to just the breath. Eventually, with progress, the person can combine them all into whatever it is that they're practicing. They could be practicing like Webu Sayadaw, only the breath. But they could be, in fact, practicing all four within or through the breath because they have gone through all the stages. They understand how they feel like and what their purposes are. So, um, so here the person is, uh, oh, similarly, the bhikkhu, while closely observing the presence of delusion in his chitta, he knows there is delusion in the chitta. Or while closely observing the absence of delusion in his chitta, he knows the chitta is free from delusion. So, so far we covered the three um, uh, kileshas, right? Loba, which is the lust, the craving, passionate craving. Second was aversion or hatred or anger, dosa. And this would be moha. These are the ones that, the, the things that, that, that hold the heart captive. And uh, that's where the anusayas are coming from, by the way. So unpleasant states of mind, fear, uh, grief, worry, uh, remorse, sadness, aversion, jealousy, uh, regret, all of these are rooted in these three poisons. And this is what Lord Buddha wanted us to be saved from by ourselves. Not being saved from having to incur all these natural uh, experiences, the body breaking up, etc. That's not what we're here for. That's not why we practice the Dhamma ultimately. Remember, there are the two arrows that Lord Buddha talked about. One, you cannot do much about other than give yourself a good nutrition, take care of the body, et cetera, et cetera. Get it out of problems as much as possible. The second is what's the important arrow. And it's the poisonous arrow of ignorance. And that's what we're seeing here in the three kileshas. That is what Lord Buddha came to remove, the poisonous arrow with the help, the antidote the healing waters of the Dhamma. That's why we practice. Similarly, the bhikkhu, while closely observing his chitta being constricted, he knows the chitta is constricted. Or while closely observing his chitta not being constricted, he knows the chitta is free from being constricted. Constricted, uh, sometimes it's called dull, but basically it's when the mind starts to fall upon inside. I wouldn't say fall, but basically you're experiencing here the residual impact or the, you're on the receiving end of the mind losing focus. It is not mindful. Now, it's interesting because how would you know that you're not mindful in the first place if you're not mindful? So there has to be sati in order for you to know that the mind is in a constricted state. Well, if you've ever gone, you know, if you've ever sat to meditate and you get drowsy and you start drooping your head, why do you come up? Why do you, you come to yourself? Okay, I'm going to sit better. You just saw there was a moment of sati there introduced in the vast sentence called drowsiness. Okay, so that, see, uh, that sati is sufficient, it's like a drop of detergent, drop of Clorox going into 
a dirty plate or a cup or fill of oil, all of a sudden it pushes everything away to the side. That's how sati works. So in this case, the recognition, any of these phases of the chitta or even the feeling or the, remember, it's all sati patana, establishments of mindfulness. So we are becoming aware that, oh, I'm not being aware. Oh, I'm absent-minded. Well, I'm, I'm, we're going to see here scattered next. Similarly, the bhikkhu, while closely observing his chitta being scattered, he knows the chitta is scattered. Or while closely observing the chitta not being scattered, he knows the chitta is free from being scattered. And here, scattered, obviously, is a reference for restlessness. Restlessness. The mind is agitated. So earlier I was giving the, giving the example of being in the eye of the hurricane versus being on the tips of its wings. That would be the scattered part. And the being in the eye of the hurricane, by the way, is not the constricted part. Uh, that is the complete awareness. Uh, so when the mind has, is, is, is drowsy, sleepy, uh, bored is another one. Bored. I like to use that oftentimes for uh, that uh, experience of the heart. Now, last week I was mentioning how we can also use the body of someone else as a point of establishing our mindfulness from. And uh, meaning if you look at a baby's breathing, infant, and, um, or, or, or an animal or a horse that's lying down, sleeping, enjoying, or a cow or something, and just they're breathing nicely, or you have a pet, and you're just observing, that breathing can also allow you to slowly, slowly become aware of your own, and the mind relaxes. So similarly with chitta, we can observe, we can see someone else's mind being restless. We can see somebody who's bored. They don't have to manifest it physically, but we can see that they're not paying attention. So when we are practicing mindfulness, it's not just within and through the body alone. We're also using our environment and the people involved. Sometimes they could be a, a, a starting position for us to return back to a sati full moment in ourselves. So we can come to us with the help of an external source so, um, which also indicates that your sati is growing, by the way. So just like in the case of uh, um, the body, uh, to some extent with the feelings, also you can recognize if somebody's having a happy feeling uh, some of the time. But in the case of chitta, you can also, you definitely see it in their behavior. So, um, and for example, identifying if this behavior or this chitta state is a kusala or akusala, wholesome or unwholesome. Similarly, the bhikkhu, while closely observing his chitta being greatly expanded, so we're seeing the different nuances, it's, it's, it's going and becoming more and more refined. He knows that chitta is greatly expanded, or while closely observing his chitta not being greatly ex expanded, he knows that chitta is not greatly expanded. Um, especially, you obviously are using a reference point, a reference somewhere, meaning 
uh, the person knows very well how it feels not to have an expanded mind or state of chitta where it's expanded. Especially when we are going through the jhanas or through meditative practice, uh, we have some reference point, some precedent is there. Um, and this is where we get attached sometimes. And we say, Bhante, how come I'm not experiencing that state of calm or that expansion? Oh, when I was in the fifth jhana, Bhante, this was amazing. But I can't get close to that. Why? 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 Well, there, that's, that's another form of identifying that the mind has not been expanded, for example. Uh, similarly, the bhikkhu, while closely observing his chitta, being inferior in its quality, he knows this, the chitta is inferior in its quality. Or while closely observing his chitta, becoming superior and accomplished, he knows the chitta is becoming superior and accomplished. So you're seeing the both ends of the spectrum. Uh, this happens when we are not being mindful, when we're not practicing for the right reasons. And we notice that we're holding or latching onto something. This is the inferior mind. Let's say a mind that seeks out uh, to have, uh, for example, uh, jhana. They're attached to the jhanas. And they say, oh, I want to have the jhana. I want to experience the jhana. How come I'm not having the jhana? That is an inferior mind. Compared to a mundane interest, you know, somebody going to the movies or watching this or that, yeah, it's, it's better than those, fine. But ultimately, when we say inferior versus superior, we're talking a mind that is going beyond the jhanas into understanding how phenomena take place, meaning wisdom, because there is no wisdom within the jhanas. There's no wisdom there. It's just a restful state to catch your breath, if you will, your, your, your meditative breath, if you will. And then to start from there. It's a station, a way station of rest on your journey to awakening. But it itself, the jhana, is not. So compared to wisdom, the jhana is inferior. So it's not the jhana that makes it inferior. It's our attachment to it. Please be mindful of that as well. Um, similarly, the bhikkhu, while closely observing the chitta being collected and stable, he knows the chitta is collected and stable. Or while closely observing his chitta being neither collected nor stable, he knows the chitta is neither collected nor stable. Now here, of course, it's a samahita or, or samadhi that we're referring to. Unfortunately, in the last century or so, Translators, English translate, translators, unfortunately also in other Western languages, they have been using the word concentration for samadhi, which is wrong, mildly put. <laughs> it's only, concentration is only a portion of, of course it has the concentrative quality to it. However, it's far bigger than that. Unfortunately, we don't have a term in English so um, that's one of the reasons why I use uh, collectedness of mind or stability of mind. I'm recently leaning more towards the stability of mind because I have a feeling it, 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 for me rather, it has the flavor of both collectedness and concentration, but it doesn't have that one-pointedness focus, which does not leave room for wisdom to take place. 
So that's why I use that. So in this case, the person has developed the mind to such a point where they're able to see when they are in samadhi or not. Or they're jumping out of it or coming out of it or not. Uh, similarly, the bhikkhu, while closely observing his chitta being released, he knows the chitta is released. Or while closely observing his chitta not being released, he knows the chitta is not released. Uh, released is mukha or mukti or liberation. Um, and uh, the things that hold us back, obviously, uh, in the case of chitta, in any of these phases, um, when it's not expanding or when it's not going deeper or becoming superior, it's usually having to do with habitual tendencies, sankhadas. Um, it might have a physical basis. For example, you might have a backache suddenly that is so overwhelming that it doesn't allow you to even go into the fourth jhana or to really settle the mind. Not even the jhana. We're not even talking about the jhana. So it, it, these show up because of conditions. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so also kamma vipakas play a huge role in this, which are the kammik results of past actions. Um, the presence or absence of delusion is another. And uh, manasikara, um, the attention that we're giving is number one. So the example I gave of a person who is stuck on the jhana part is a person who's putting the attention in the wrong way, meaning ayoniso manasikara. Um, and what that means is basically the person is uh, focusing on the lack versus that's okay. That's okay. I mean, jhanas are also a source of dukkha. So what's the big deal about that? If they happen, they happen. It's okay. Let me sit. Let me wash the breath some more. Let me come back to the metta. Yes, that feels good. Okay, okay. Let's start from there and just drop the monologue. And so the attention is number one. Attention is number one. Uh, but as you see, these are all conditions that bring about these states. And that's another reason why uh, Nibbana is the unconditioned. It's beyond. Asankata, uh, they're called sometimes. Uh, they call it sometimes. So, um, I, uh, well, let me finish this. Thus, the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever states that are occurring in the citta, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, both internally or externally. This is how the bhikkhu meditates also, while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the states in the citta, mindful of them in all their transitions. And I will stop here <laughs> after two hours. Uh, and uh, I'm glad we were able to cover. Uh, your patience is commended <laughs> in sitting through this. Uh, so next week we will do uh, the Dhammanupasana, which is the biggest chunk of the Mahasatipatthana. And I will stop here and open for any questions, comments. You might have again pertaining to the sutta, the practice, or the dhamma. So, a sip of water would be nice. <clears throat> a lot was covered, yes, I know. And 
I, I apologize if it seemed or it felt like I was rushing through some of it, and I was uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, but uh, yeah, so any thoughts, comments about this? Hmm. It's a lot. It's a lot, and and. Uh, but please don't think that this is for a different era, for a different group of people that you don't fit in somehow. Like I mentioned last week, this Lord Buddha is talking about the, uh, the audience, rather, that is being the bhikkhus. But please don't think that it is just for bhikkhus or monastics, where you have to be on a retreat to be practicing this. No, no, no. That's completely false. Lord Buddha would never give a set of instructions that could not be applied in a person's life. Yes, sometimes he, he would gauge the mindset or where the audience's level is or was, and he would, like in the case of Madhupindika Sutta, all right? So it's so vast, it has so many layers to it. But... In a different sutta, you hear him speak to Bahia and giving such a succinct, short, 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 short instruction because he was ready. And boom, he becomes an arahant. The shortest time period ever took with the shortest instruction. But they both are doable, workable, applicable, especially now in our world today. So, yeah, please, please take something out of this sutta. Something, anything. No, you don't have to be going to a charnel ground to look for one. No. Just look at your body. Look at the body or a picture of you from 20 years ago and compare. That's enough of a charnel ground for some people. Well, if there are no questions, oh, I was going to ask if we could, um, each of us, um, in the morning and at night, if you could uh, practice metta specifically, not as part of your practice per se, but specifically for what is happening to our planet. So if you could go ahead and, and radiate metta uh, it doesn't have to be a full hour or even half an hour. Uh, each of us have different schedules, I'm sure. But if you could do it for 10 minutes at least, 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, that should be sufficient. And you can do it anywhere. If you can go outside, it's better. Uh, but especially at night, if you could do it at night before you put your head on the pillow to sleep, and that's good for not just yourself, of course, but everyone else, every being, living being, uh, whether visible or invisible, um, to feel some of that. Because this planet is severely lacking in that department now, especially now. So please, uh, I wanted to encourage you to uh, bring that aspect into your practice. So... Um, with that, let's let's uh, share some merits. 
May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May you be well. May the blessings of the Triple Gem be upon you and your loved ones and to this planet. And we are caretakers of each other and this planet. But we cannot possibly do that by neglecting what is happening in the mind. That is where we start the protection. That is where we start the caretaking process. And that is why we practice the three trainings, sila, samadhi, panya. These are all ours. It is your sila. It is your samadhi. It is your, definitely your panya. That is something that each of us have to do for ourselves and allow it to seep out and permeate like a delicious fragrance everywhere in the universe. And it does make an impact. It does make an impact. So I will uh, hopefully see you next week. And I'm sorry, Bhante, I think... Sorry, Bhante, I think Lou wanted to say something. Oh, I'm sorry, somebody wanted to say something? Mm, yes, I wanted to ask, um, for example, um, the attitude hmm. and the volition uh, is so, let's say, depending on the attitude, the body, the Vedana, the Chitta can go here or there, right? So can we say that the, the attitude uh, permeates even the, the Dhamma Nupasana, like the four uh, areas of the Satipatthana? Yes, uh, that is why I always encourage you whenever you're sitting, especially for the formal practice, to always check your attitude, your mind. Because when, when we refer to the attitude, what we're talking about is samaditi, right view. Without samaditi, you're on the wrong track. You might seem like you're doing everything right, but the person might actually be a very self-righteous, self-serving individual. On the surface, they're not breaking any precepts. They're not saying anything mean. They're not doing anything mean. And they look like they're practicing good lifestyle, life, livelihood. But because the primary step is wrong, everything goes wrong. Yes, the person might develop, because of the satipatthana, it's a tool to allow the mind to settle. They might be developing some level of concentration or meditative practice or mindfulness. But sooner or later, and this is one of the reasons why individuals need to be working with a teacher. 
when it, because this is very, this is like um, eye surgery or brain surgery. And we need uh, the Dhamma, the, 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 the curative qualities of the Dhamma. Unfortunately, I know, notice that many people, when it comes to the Noble Eightfold Path, they say, yeah, I know, I know them. I list them, I have it somewhere in the house. So I, I come to the talks, I, I study suttas, and I do donations here and there. So I must, and I call myself a Buddhist, and I take the five pre precepts, so I must have right view. No, not exactly. So that's one of the reasons why the teacher cannot be with you, though. Lord Buddha died 2,600 years ago, almost. They, they're totally not helpful in that regard. We have to always check because nobody's there with you. Nobody can identify your true lobha, your true dosa, your true moha. You have the ultimate power in knowing that. However, if you, the person, is sticking their head into the sand like an ostrich, unwilling to see what's what, there's not going to be growth. I have personally met and been on retreats with individuals who have done uh, what they claim to be satipatthana retreats, the 10 days, this, one month, three months, six months, one person, 40 years, four zero years. And when, you know, Lord Buddha says uh, this beautifully in the Vimansaka Sutta, in relation to teachers, of course, but you can expand it to everyone. As far as knowing the quality of the person's life and practice, he says, you must live with them, spend some time with them, to know them up close. So that's when it happens. When you start seeing, wow, this person is really, really, wow. And they become inspiring suddenly. Or, like the example I was giving, despite the fact that this person, one of them had spent, another one was 25 years, this was 40 years. I was like, wow, you got up from the meditation after two hours. And yeah, even though it's supposed to be quiet, noble silence, this and that, He's rushing to get to the front of the line of the people who will be getting food, for example. Or speaking ceaselessly about other things other than the Dhamma, other times. And so you observe. Again, our job is not to place judgment. Our job is to be cognizant of our own right attitude. And this would be another example of using the, the, the template of someone else to say, ah, perhaps I also have those qualities in me. Hmm. That becomes a jumping board for the person to come back to themselves and check their attitude. Maybe I have that too. I wonder if I also ran to the front of the line, walked quickly out of the Dhamma hall pretending that I'm looking at this and that. Meanwhile, I'm walking fast to get to the sala to eat. 
Maybe I knew that too. Hmm. And this is when the person is practicing right view as well. So absolutely, it's the attitude that has to come first. And not, you know, and because the attitude holds within it so many different things. The attitude might also be saying, the wrong attitude might be saying, uh, um, well, I have a reputation. I've told people, uh, my friends, I have entered the eighth jhana, so I know how to get in and out of the eight jhanas. But today, I can't even get into the first jhana. So I better make sure that that's wrong attitude completely. There's no Dhamma there. So, but who can do this surgery, this fine precision surgery? Only the meditator. And that's why we shouldn't waste time and not fool ourselves. And to be able to be honest and truthful and recognize the wrong thing the moment we see it and not be ashamed of it recognize it but then not be like lord buddha is saying not to be fixated on it because that's another problem where we become remorseful and there's no dhamma there either so see it okay okay so yeah i was practicing for 40 years so i jumped in front of the line okay i feel embarrassed okay recognize it okay don't do it again that's your sila okay break out of it. So thank you for that question. Yes, definitely we do. Uh, number one, uh, attention to the attitude. Any other questions before we? Okay, so uh, be well, and uh, we'll continue from the Dhammanupassana uh, next week. And uh, Sukihoto, all of you.